Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. The book of Exodus. We are continuing our sermon series called Table Read. A table read is when actors or actresses sit down at a table in order to read the entire script of the drama that they're taking part in together. And this table read provides two things for them, perspective. So it enables players in this drama to see the bigger picture, which then gives them, number two, boldness. Because when you see the bigger picture, you play your part with confidence. At Hope, we believe the Bible is not just one religious book amongst many others offering spiritual advice, give or take. But we believe the Bible actually tells the true story of the world. And so on the one hand, the Bible is God's story and Jesus is the hero. But the same exact story, as we're discovering, invites you and it invites me to play a pivotal role in this drama of rescue. So we're table reading the Bible. We're exploring entire books at a time. We will explore entire sections at a time. Last week we looked at the entire book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Today we turn to Exodus. But before we do so, let me just pray. Oh Lord, with the words of my mouth and with all of our meditation on your word, be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock and you are our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would actually see Jesus, that he would be worshipped. That we would, by the power of your spirit, actually encounter Jesus this morning through your word and be changed as we gaze at him. So Lord, would this not be a time of just facts, but would it instead be a time of transformation? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was an undergraduate, I took a course called Oscar Wilde and Theatricality. We would read the British wordsmith, Oscar Wilde, and we would talk about how his life and his work embodied this concept called theatricality. Now, what's theatricality? That's a fancy way of just saying that so much of life resembles a theater. Or as Shakespeare put it, all the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts. This class was amazing, but it messed me up. (laughs) Let me explain why. It messed me up big time. Just ask my wife how we were dating at the time. It forced me to examine my life. Isn't that terrible? (laughs) Forced me to examine my life. We were asked to consider how much of our life is just acting out scripts that were handed to us. By our parents, by our culture, by our advertisers, by our influencers. Up to that point in my life, I just assumed that I was sort of uniquely choosing my own adventure. 
But this class kind of popped that balloon. And like I said, it messed me up. It messed me up. But I'll say this. In the end, it was a good thing. Because once I could admit that scripts are inevitable, I could begin to ask, what scripts am I following today? And therefore, which are true, which are good, and which are beautiful? And then I could, at that point, ditch the bad scripts and take on the scripts that bring meaning and freedom in life. Pastor and author Pete Scazzaro, we're using his book for our home group, says that this is part of what it means, actually, to mature in Jesus. To really grow in Jesus, it helps to discover what he calls our family's invisible scripts. These are our unexamined beliefs handed to us in the past about things like finances or things like marriage roles or things like conflict, things like God, worship, friendship, and the list goes on. And he calls them invisible scripts because most of the time we don't even see them even though we're organizing all of our life around them. But it's crucial to notice them and then challenge them, especially, especially when these scripts are not in alignment with the script that Jesus hands us. Scazzaro writes, we may choose to become Christ followers, but in reality, we continue to follow, follow, perhaps unconsciously, the commandments and the rules that we internalize in our family of origin. And I would just add to that phrase, family of origin, that these commandments and rules that we sort of invisibly take on and, and follow are not just our families of origin, like who we grew up with, but it can also expand out to include the other families that we're a part of. This church is a family. Living in America in this current moment is a family. Our leaders, our cultural fashions, they all shape who we are. And so what we need most is to return to the script of all scripts, the script that Jesus would have us take on. The one that we're actually made for, the one single script that following it does not bring bondage, but following it actually brings freedom. I want to say this. If scripts are unavoidable, then let's make sure it's good and true and beautiful. Amen? And that's what we have with the Bible. That's what we have with the scriptures. And in particular, the book of Exodus. In fact, Exodus worked this way in the life of ancient Israel. The Exodus itself was not just some pretty cool event that happened a long time ago for them, but it actually shaped them profoundly. It literally defined them. It was for them their script. And so you have this Hebrew word called zakar. You have this Hebrew word called zakar, which is often translated remember in your English Bibles. And that's what Israel did every single year when they remembered the events of the Exodus, especially the Passover. So that in chapter 12 of Exodus, we see this verse. This is a day to zakar. This is a day to remember. Each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. But the way that they would zakar these events of the Exodus was not by recalling these events in their brain. 
as we would in the modern West. When we hear the word zakar, we, well, when we hear the word remembered, we simply consider that to mean a recalling in our brain. But in ancient Israel, that's far too brainy, okay? In ancient Israel, to remember was not just a call to mind. To remember was actually a call to action. So yes, Exodus was their script. And it was important to relive the Exodus script because they knew the power of alternative scripts, didn't they? If they lived all of their existence in Egypt and in the bondage of Egypt, then they know only that script and they need to continually counter the prevailing scripts of their day and of their past. They need to relive, in other, in other words, they need to relive, they need to zakar their redemption so that they would live indeed as God's redeemed people. And that is for us as well. We have powerful scripts that are being handed to us and that have been handed to us. And so Exodus could be for us this morning a powerful counter script. One that actually brings freedom. But to take the script in hand, we need to know what is actually in the script. Amen. We actually need to know what Exodus says. And so this morning we're going to do two things like last week. First, we're just going to get a handle on the basic facts of the book of Exodus. But then second, we're going to explore how this book, this script challenges major scripts of our day. Three in particular. But first, let's overview. Let's do the 36,000 foot flyover. I really love Gordon Fee's outline. And so we're just going to use that this morning. So first, what we find... In chapters 1 and 2, it's the growth and oppression of Israel in Egypt. If you were with us with Genesis last year, you remember it ends with the death of Joseph. Now, verse 6 of chapter 1 in Exodus tells us that all of Joseph's brothers dies as well. But these folks had children, and their children had children, so that Israel is now beginning to look like a multitude. Which is exactly what Joseph's great-great-grandfather was promised by God. He would be the father of a multitude. But with this growth comes oppression. So this is how Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright puts it. A change in the government of Egypt brings a change in the state's policy toward this immigrant ethnic minority of Hebrews in their midst. The government launches a fear-based policy of oppression that includes forced labor in construction and agricultural projects combined with a murderous attempt at population control. The children of Israel, as they're now called, endure every kind of bondage, economic, political, social, and spiritual, and they cry out in their suffering. So enter Moses. The king's policy is to murder Israelite baby boys, but with his sister's help, Miriam, and some others, Moses is placed in a sort of mini ark. So if you were with us last week, we talked about the ark. Picture Moses in a, in a mini ark above these sort of waters of judgment. And he's noticed by Pharaoh's daughter and that he's raised in Egypt, similar to Joseph before him. And as he grows, he starts to notice this oppression. He starts to notice this profound economic, political, social, and spiritual bondage and injustice. And he notices an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And so what does Moses do? Moses kills him. And this causes him to basically say, uh-oh, 
What did I do? I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. And so he flees to the wilderness as an outlaw where he meets his wife, Zipporah. And they live this sort of long and lovely life. Meanwhile, as he sort of lives this life, if you take a look at chapter 2, verse 23, things are not looking good for Israel. They cry out and God hears their cry. God zakars his promise to Abraham and his children. And do you remember, praise God, that remember does not just mean a call to mind, but a call to action. So that when God remembers his promise, what does he do? He acts. He acts. So God interrupts Moses' lovely life out in the farm. Moses is shepherding his flock at Mount Sinai, a place called the Mountain of God, where he encounters a bush which is on fire with God's strange presence. And as it's pointed out, soon the whole mountain is going to be on fire with God's strange presence. Well, through this encounter, Moses learns three things. That number one, God hears the cry of the oppressed. Number two, God will use Moses in some miraculous way. And number three, that God is not just some generic deity, but that he is the Lord of all. In fact, he is Yahweh. I am who I am, which means he is a covenant God. He is a promise making God, which means he is a personal God, which means he is a God who enters into relationship with people. Yahweh. And that's chapters two through six. We continue on, though, in chapter 6 through 15, where we experience and read about the miraculous deliverance from bondage. So Moses returns to Egypt. He tells Pharaoh what's up. But this only makes things worse, makes things a lot worse, actually, for Israel. But Pharaoh's time is up. And so chapters 5, I'm sorry, 6 through 15 here, tell of God's rescue. How does God do it? Well, if you remember... Maybe you've heard this before, but God sends plagues, each a judgment against Egypt's so-called gods. In fact, it would be um, appropriate to understand the plagues as a sort of opposition against the scripts that were shaping Israel in those days, the false scripts. Because God in each moment is saying, I stand over that. And each of these judgments increase in severity, and sadly for Egypt's people, They all just make Pharaoh more and more resolved against God, against God's people. And so by chapter 11, we read about God's final warning, which is the death of Egypt's firstborn. If you're with us a few weeks ago, we actually explored the Passover. Were you there for that? God provides protection from this plague. The blood of a spotless lamb, when spread on the doorpost, would grant God's people Safety. The judgment of God would pass over them. That's why it's called pass over. And if you're thinking about the cross right about now, then you would be spun. The blood of a spotless lamb. And this happens and off they go. But Pharaoh isn't done. Israel's chased. And then, and then Israel is cornered by Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. But in chapter 14, God splits the sea, saving Israel with the same water that destroys Pharaoh and his army. Which takes us to chapter 15 through 18. Where Israel travels toward Mount Sinai. Remember, this is where Moses lived most of his life. But along the way, Israel complains and they grumble. You get the sense, and who can blame them actually, that they preferred Egypt to that. In fact, this moment in Exodus played a huge role in my calling 
as a pastor. And I would love to have coffee with you to tell you more. But essentially, I didn't want to follow God's call. Because it was unknown. And so I preferred known bondage to unknown freedom. Amen. But it's in these travels that God miraculously provides water, provides food, manna and quail, and even administrative wisdom to Moses from Moses' father-in-law. If you have a father-in-law, that's just a fun one to read. So then we get to chapters 19 through 24, where we encounter the covenant of Sinai. This is where this ragtag group officially becomes God's covenant people, or his promised people. To mark this, God gives Israel ten commandments. You heard of those? These ten commandments flesh out what love of God and what love of neighbor look like. What makes them utterly unique and life-giving to the nations. Now, I don't know about you, but we tend to bristle at the Ten Commandments, don't we? We tend to think that the laws of God are somehow harsh or somehow a bad thing. But we need to see God's law as a huge gift and as a huge treasure to God's people in Exodus. And it still is. And all I want you to do, just for a moment, to plant this seed is to consider Jesus. Why do I say that? Because Jesus is the most beautiful human to ever live. Pretty much everybody agrees with that. Even folks who are against Christianity and against the religion of Christianity only have good things to say about Jesus. Perhaps like Gandhi who endured colonization from Christians but famously said he likes Jesus even though he resents his followers. Well, Jesus is the Ten Commandments in flesh. Have you thought about that? He perfectly embodied perfect love to God and perfect love to neighbor, which is the Ten Commandments. His life was one of beauty, and it was a gift to many. And so the next few chapters where this this gift of the law is given to Israel is really a gift of beauty and offering to the nations. This is what God is like. And then after the Ten Commandments are given, what we're given shortly after that is sort of, you could think of it as like case law. Applications of these ten words, these ten laws to everyday situations. And Israel accepts the terms of the covenant. And then Moses and the elders of Israel do what? Well, they have a meal. There they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue. Lapis lazuli. As clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. I just want you to pause for a moment here and consider the whole point of Exodus and maybe the whole point of the Bible, friends, is right here. God will do whatever it takes to make a place at his table for his people. So then we move on to chapters 24 through 31. Chapter 24 actually ends with Moses in the mountain for 40 days, totally immersed in a dense cloud, marking God's presence. So talk about a mountaintop experience, right, with God. 
But then for all the architects out there, or architects in training, or Lego lovers, anybody? Anybody? Okay. What's about to happen in Exodus is going to be your love language. Because what's about to happen is for the next eight chapters, it's basically a verbal blueprint for a traveling tent house in which God will live. And this is usually where a lot of us, if we're reading the book of Exodus, our eyes start to glaze over. But essentially what is being described with words is kind of what you're seeing right here in image. And I don't want you to miss the big point here. God is saying to Israel, I want to move in with you. I want to move in with you. I want to be as close as possible to you. So he sets up shop. Which then takes us to 32 through 34. These chapters talk about rebellion, covenant breaking, and renewal. So (laughs) right before this moment, we would expect Exodus to end. That would be like, the if we were writing the script, that's where everything would end, right? Because think about it. Meals with God, Moses in the mountain, God moving in, intimacy with God. It kind of sounds like Eden, doesn't it? It's as if Eden is being restored. All is right. But something is happening while Moses is away. I wonder if you remember. The very beginning of chapter 32 begins like this. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down to the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, come on, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. And so we learn a few things about the human condition right here. Number one, old scripts die hard. Idolatry, again, was the prevailing script. And so when Moses is gone for a minute, they return to their default. Old scripts die hard, number one. Number two, though, God's promises prevail. Because despite this serious rebellion, God is committed to his promise. He is a covenant God. He is Yahweh. He is, he is set to do what he said he would do. And so after Moses actually intercedes and pleads for Israel, God renews his covenant, his promise. And it's here we learn that God is a God of, and this is a famous saying that gets reverberated all throughout scripture. God is a God of compassion and a God of mercy. It's here we learn that God is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Who lavishes unfailing love to a thousand generations. Who forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But who does not at the same time ignore the gravity of sin. Who does not excuse the guilty or the generational effects of sin. God is holy and yet merciful. And that's what we read in these chapters. Which takes us to the end where the tabernacle is set up. And the glory descends. God's visible presence descending on the house. So that's the basic story. And there's enough in there for us to chew on for our lifetime. But this morning, just briefly here as we close, I want to suggest three ways that this script challenges some of the powerful scripts that are in our day. That have been handed to us. And that we might be following without even being aware of it. And this is what they are. The script of self-rule. The script of self-made spirituality and the script of self-reliance. So first, I just want to talk about the script of self-rule. 
This script says true freedom is found in self-rule, or big word for this, autonomy. Auto-self, nami-law, self-law, self-governance, self-rule. This script is powerful. It promises abundant life. All we have to do is call our own shots. We don't submit to anything but our desires. We don't submit to anything but our wisdom. We don't submit to anything but our path. To do otherwise, our script would tell us, is to actually be in the worst kind of bondage, right? That's the script of self-rule. Well, the script of Exodus cuts right against this, doesn't it? All you have to do is think about it for a second. As others have said, Exodus defines true freedom. And true freedom, as has been said, is not just freedom from, but a freedom to. It shows us that true freedom is not just the absence of rules, but the presence of the right rules. Or the absence of, true freedom is not the absence of authority, but the presence of a good authority. True freedom is not self-rule, but surrender to the true king. We see this played out all through Exodus and by way basically of a giant contrast. You have the tyranny of Pharaoh versus the good rule of Yahweh. Pharaoh is a tyrant and the gods of Egypt are not life-giving but they're enslaving. And the end result of Pharaoh's rule is oppression. So under Pharaoh, Israel can only cry out. His decisions not only hurt Israel, but all of Egypt too. And I just consider maybe some of the scripts that we are living out are causing us to cry out, to only cry out. Perhaps this morning you're thinking for the very first time, yeah, you know what? <laughs> Life isn't good under my self-rule. Pretty much a lot of oppression. We'll contrast that with the good rule of Yahweh. Think about this. God, he hears the cry of the oppressed. He doesn't cause oppression. He hears the cry of the oppressed. God keeps his promises. He doesn't break promises like Pharaoh does time and time again in this narrative. He, you know, God isn't triggered like Pharaoh is, but very slow to anger and merciful and compassionate. God adopts you as his firstborn. He doesn't just simply enslave you. God calls you his treasured possession. Think of the thing that you would grab right now if your house was burning down. What's that one thing or hopefully person that you would grab as your house is burning down? That is your treasured possession. And friends, that is what God calls you. That is the true king. Over and against Pharaoh. Pharaoh who simply says, yeah, whatever, I just want... Really cool buildings built. I don't care if you suffer for it. God wants to be near you, as we saw with the tabernacle. God wants to pursue his people. And so we see that the good rule of God is good. And it's most clearly shown in whom? King Jesus. Amen? The King of kings and the Lord of lords, he uses his authority to serve you. Not himself. He doesn't harden in self-protection like Pharaoh does, but instead... He came precisely to lay it all down so that you would have freedom. See, here's the question that Exodus forces us to grapple with right now. What if we were made to flourish under the good rule of Jesus? What if we were made for that? What if Bob Dylan is right? You have to serve somebody. Or in the language of our sermon series, you have to follow a script. What if that's true? 
And what if the only script that brings freedom is the one that Jesus hands you? And if that's true, then let's abandon the false script of self-rule right now. For some of you, that just means trusting in Jesus for the first time, honestly. Laying down this script that you've been handed and you've been living where you're ruling your life, you're calling shots, and instead you're simply saying, you know what, I see how it's only causing issues, and I drop it, and with these empty hands, I now lay hold of the script that Jesus gives me, which is life and freedom and forgiveness. There's another script, though, I think that Exodus challenges, and I would call it the script of self-made spirituality. This is a powerful, invisible script that says individual spirituality is good, but do your own thing. Whatever spiritual path brings fulfillment in your life is a valid spiritual path. But Exodus, again, tells us something important about spirituality, that we are designed to worship So anything else will fall short. In fact, anything else, Exodus would tell us, is idolatry. And we see this summarized beautifully in the Ten Commandments, right? When you observe these ten words, you'll notice that the first four relate to our love of God and the other six relate to our love of neighbor, which means that we are designed to love God and love neighbor. Not just any God. We are designed to love the true God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are designed to love the God who made all things. And so we are designed to do that anytime we place our love or our trust or our obedience or anything else in any other created thing, then life goes off the rails. And Exodus calls it idolatry, which is no small thing. See, if we're designed to love God, then the most loving thing that God can do is to free us up to love him. And that's exactly what Exodus is. We're also designed to love neighbor as the ten words talk about. This is our mission. In fact, God calls Israel its kingdom of priests in Exodus. I don't know what image comes up when you hear the word priest, but I love what Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright reminds me of, and it's this. That priests, he says, quote, bring God to the people and bring people to God. That's the priest's role in the Old Testament. Priests have a double role, according to Chris Wright. Priests have a double role, and that's how they bless the people. They bring God to the people, and they bring people to God. And that's what Israel's called to do. And therefore, that is true spirituality. Do you understand? We are called, even in the New Testament, a kingdom of priests under the good rule of Jesus who are designed and actually will flourish when we are like reflecting God to the world and also drawing folks and inviting folks into the good life with God. That is true spirituality. It's not just any path. It's precisely that path. We worship the true God, and therefore we are all priests who reflect the true God out to the world, who invite people in. Other paths may work for a season, but they will break down eventually. I think of my car this summer. Summer summer gas prices were really high. And we just got this new gas station at the corner in our neighborhood that was advertising super cheap gas. Apparently, this gas is called unleaded 88. It's got more ethanol in it. Well, when I told my friend that I started using it in my 2002 Honda Civic, my friend said, don't do that. (laughs) That gas is designed for new cars. (laughs) 
it'll break down. It'll break things down in your car if you use it too much. Don't get on the highway, he said. Why did he say that? He loved me. He wanted my car to break down. See, my engine wasn't made for this stuff. And so even though the price was right, even though the price was enticing, even though it looked like gas, even though it smelled like gas, even though it worked, honestly, I drove very well, so it would have been tempting to just keep using it. I knew by my, by my friend's good authority that it would eventually break my car down. And that is the script of self-made spirituality. We can pursue this, and there is a sort of sense in which it works, but it only works for a season in the sense if we take this script seriously, only the script of covenant with the true God works. Because that's how we were made. Everything else is idolatry. So idols, they can look like the, the golden calf as we read about. But they can also be harder to detect. In fact, they can be anything that replaces God. It can be anything that sort of receives, as one would put it, our trust. Think about what are you tempted to trust in? That is not the true God. Or our love. Or our obedience. These are oftentimes the things that when you wake up, you think about the first time. These are often the things in your life, oftentimes are good things like grades or or job or 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 somebody to date or all, all kinds of amazing good things can oftentimes start to rise up to the idol level. Because what happens is it takes the place of God for our trust, for our safety. It takes the place of God for our obedience. We start to obey the demands of these idols and they destroy our life. And so allow Exodus to challenge you here. What what are you filling your gas tank with that may work for a season that ultimately will break your engine down? And I just want to close with the last script, which is self-reliance. I think Exodus challenges the invisible script of self-reliance, which is when we think that life is up to us. We can, uh, this can even creep into Christianity. We, we think salvation or our okayness with God is ultimately up to us, but Exodus friends will not allow it. This might surprise you. Maybe you're thinking Exodus is a book with all these rules, these commandments from God. Isn't God demanding that I obey him in order that he loved me? Or isn't God demanding that I obey him in order to receive his care? But that's not at all what Exodus teaches. The script of Exodus is a script of unrelenting grace. And we see this time and time again in the story. For instance, we saw that God draws near to us. Exodus is the story of God drawing near to his people. Never the other way around. In fact, the entire tabernacle is a building plan for God to live in our midst. It's him drawing near to us. Imagine getting a mail, a piece of mail, uh, and it's a letter saying, hey, your parents have decided to move in. And I'm a contractor they've contacted, and they're going to build an addition to your house. Okay? Whether that's good or bad news for you, the point remains. They are drawing near to be with you. That is exactly what Exodus tells you. That God is coming into our presence. He's drawing near to us, and that's exactly what Exodus teaches. God draws near to us. He tabernacles with us. And if you open John's Gospel, right away, the birth of Jesus is described as a tabernacle. God tabernacling, God drawing near to us. And so Exodus takes us straight into the heart of Jesus, doesn't it? He longs to draw near to us. I would say this too, God rescues us. 
Exodus is a story of rescue, God's rescue, not our rescue, God's rescue. Did you know that the Ten Commandments themselves begin with a prelude? I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. And then the Ten Commandments come out. Don't miss this detail. Because what does it tell us all? It tells us all that God rescues us. He saves us. And so anything that follows these commands, God does not say, obey these commands and I will rescue you. No, it's a prelude, not a postlude. God says, I have rescued you by grace. He does not say, obey and I will rescue you. He says, I have rescued you by grace and here is more grace. Pathways of life. We don't obey the Ten Commandments in order to be saved. We obey the Ten Commandments because they are a gift from God to God's rescued people. Our obedience or disobedience does not have anything to say about the prelude, does it? The prelude just is there. God rescues us by grace. And then lastly here, God sends a Savior. I think Exodus prepares us to receive a Savior, a greater Moses. Who, like Moses, intercedes for us when we worship idols. Who, like Moses, ascends the mountain to bring down words that bring life. Sermon on the Mount. Who, like Moses, reflects the glory of God, but only perfectly. A Savior who fights for us, but wins by dying as a Passover lamb. Moses who goes, like Moses, Jesus who goes through the waters of judgment, but is buried in the waters for us. So we could be free. And he never grumbles in the wilderness, but for the joy set before him endures the cross for our freedom. The script of Exodus, in other words, friends, takes us to Jesus who called his own mission an Exodus. Jesus came to redeem us, and he did it by perfectly taking on the terms of the covenant. He obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly. And you know what? When we look at the cross, we should be thinking, that is, as Paul tells us in Galatians, the curse for disobeying the Ten Commandments. Jesus obeyed the terms of the covenant for us, and he also endured the sanctions of the covenant for us. Why? So that we would be truly free. This is the only script, friends, of freedom. If Exodus is your script, you are most free because it leads you to King Jesus. And so, Jesus, we come to you now. We trust you this morning. We're grateful that this script points to you. And we lay down all of our idols. We lay down all of our false scripts. And we now cling to you, Jesus, who alone brings life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.